Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we confess that you are worthy, and sometimes it is just so difficult to look at what's going on in our lives and around the world and to remember these great truths that, first and foremost, you are in control and nothing takes you by surprise. And secondly, that everything that happens is ultimately for our good. And in the face of such wickedness and darkness, it's sometimes hard to believe that. So we pray that you would increase our faith, that you would give us the right perspective of your power and the right perspective of your goodness, that you, you are so good and so powerful that you're able to work all of this for the good of those who love you. I pray that those thoughts would undergird us today as we look at what you revealed to your servant Habakkuk. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come this morning to the book of Habakkuk. And I want to say a few things by way of introduction. Nothing is really known about him as a person other than his name and his message. It's sort of like John the Baptist. When he shows up, he's just simply the voice. He doesn't say that he's the prophet. He doesn't say that he's Elijah, even though Jesus says that he's Elijah. And he's not the Messiah. He's just a voice crying in the wilderness. That is how many of the prophets of old were. There are some we know where they come from and who their father is or whatnot, and maybe some of their professional background. But in the case of Habakkuk, we just have his name and his message. And the message itself, if you were one of the first hearers, and here comes this guy, we don't know who he is, we don't know what his pedigree is, why should we listen to him? The message itself carries with it inherent authorization. It, it, it speaks for itself. Why should we trust the words of this prophet? Well, just listen to what he says. That's how the prophet works in terms of authority. And this summer, if all goes as planned, we will have covered three of the minor prophets, the so-called minor prophets, 12 of them. We've already covered Haggai. We are now in Habakkuk, and we will finish, Lord willing, with Jonah. And so it's actually in reversed order in terms of sequence. The earliest would have been Jonah of these three, then Habakkuk, and then Haggai. But as the case is, we're viewing them in reverse order. So, I want to summarize a little bit what the themes are of this book. Um, The prophet is protesting what is going on. The title, as you see up on the screen and on your bulletin, is Wickedness Increases. And that's the context for what the prophet says, and that is the burden that he feels and senses. Wickedness is increasing, and it's all around. And he brings this petition to the Lord, and the Lord answers, and then That answer isn't exactly what the prophet wants to hear, and so he has another complaint, and then the Lord answers again, and then it ends with a psalm of praise in chapter 3. We'll address the uh, the totality of Habakkuk in four weeks, and uh, many of the themes that we'll find are actually very similar to what you encounter in the book of Job, and I was leaning towards preaching through all of Job, so you can be happy about Habakkuk. (laughs) 
we wouldn't have gone verse by verse. Um, it would have taken maybe three or four months to go through of all of Job. But nonetheless, here we are with Habakkuk. And I think in many ways, Habakkuk is so relevant for us today in view of everything that is going on. I think the church especially needs a fresh vision, or rather, maybe better, a fresh set of lenses through which to see the world and through which to see all the events that are happening. How ought we to view these things? How how ought we to be like the men who came and surrounded David when he was in his hour of need and they understood the times, the Bible says? How are we to understand the times? There are certainly many people out there who make a lot of money trying to answer that question with all sorts of prophetic interpretations, trying to get you to buy it. And all the while, here is Habakkuk who gives us, I believe, a perfect set of lens to see and understand the times. So we usually begin any sermon with reading the text. Uh, We're not doing that today because there's a little bit of a need for historical reconstruction. We need to know what's going on leading up to Habakkuk so that we can understand and appreciate what he's saying in context. Typically, there's some type of historical marker, right? We saw this with Haggai in, in the uh, some odd year of so-and-so's reign, right? So it gave some type of historical reference. None of that happens with Habakkuk. And the reason it's absent in Habakkuk is because his original hearers would have been painfully aware of the historical context. They would have known what is going on. It would have been clearly obvious to them. So we're going to spend a little bit of time reconstructing the history. And this is a subtle plug for our Bible reading plan. We do three chapters a day in our church Bible reading plan, and one of them is in preparation for the sermon. So if you read the Bible reading plan this week, you will have read six chapters, really, from mainly from Second Kings, leading us up to the events or the prophetic ministry of Habakkuk. And I was helped reconstructing this by a commentary by Palmer Robert, uh, Robertson. So if you want to pick that up, it's, it's very, very good. So <clears throat> to reconstruct the history, as you see, we have the reign of Hezekiah from the year 715 B.C. to 687 or 686. And just keep in mind, the, it's B.C., so the flow of numbers goes backwards, Right? And during that time, at 701 B.C., that is when Shennacherib, king of Assyria, comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. Assyria had already taken the northern tribes into captivity. And here he comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. And this is affirmed in the historical record, even in the the recordings in Shennacherib's palace, we see him writing down in his own journal, uh, surrounding King Hezekiah as a bird in a cage. And we know the story. God, uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, works together with the king and brings a great deliverance. All of the armies of Shennacherib are killed in one night. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Hezekiah is granted 15 extra years. He gets sick, and Isaiah says, get your affairs in order. God's going to essentially see you off. And uh, Hezekiah prays fervently, and God gives him 15 additional years. And in those 15 additional years, there's probably 10 years where Hezekiah had a co-regency with his son Manasseh. 
And now we come to Manasseh. And he reigned on his own from 687 or 686 to 642. And he was the worst king in the Old Testament, hands down. In many ways, you know, the, the, the heel of the northern tribes was uh, uh, Ahab, right? We see his, the drama play out between him and, and Elijah. But even worse than Ahab is Manasseh, and it begins his reign of decline. And during that time, Assyria uh, continues to grow in power. And during this time, the ministry of Nahum actually happens. And he declares, even when Assyria is at its height of power, Nahum prophesies the fall of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. In 642, we come to the end of the half-century rule of Manasseh, during which time Judah had gone past the point of no return. The idolatry and the rampant wickedness was full-scale. Idolatry was everywhere human sacrifice, all sorts of promiscuity and everything such as had never been seen. And then we get to, uh, there's, there's two years of this King Amon, and he began to reign when he was 22, and the Lord uh, had already, under the rule of Manasseh, his patience had been spent, and he only gave Amon two years to rule, and then he died. And then we get Josiah. Good King Josiah. He came to the throne in 640 BC. He was eight years old when he was appointed king, if you can imagine. And at age 16, the text indicates that he begins to seek the Lord. In his first public reform movement, where he began to remove idols and to try and push push the nation of Israel back towards faithfulness to the Lord, it began when he was around age 22. And around this time, the last great king of the Assyrians was assassinated, beginning the fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy that Assyria would fall. At age 26, Josiah discovers the law of Moses, and he begins massive reform movements. It was glorious and horrific at the same time, if you read the actual historical account of all that Josiah did to get rid of idolatry. During this time is also the ministry of Zephaniah, who gives the prophetic backing for the, ministry, or the, the reforms of Josiah. In 612, so just three years before the end of Josiah's reign, Nineveh falls. By the combined forces of the Medes and the Babylonians, thus fulfilling Nahum's prophecy. In 609... Uh, Nico, king of Egypt, is a pharaoh. He's, he's going up through Palestine to fight against the Babylonians. And Josiah thinks this is a threat, and he goes out and fights him, and there Josiah dies. And after the death of Josiah, we see an immediate moral decline under King Jehoaz. He only reigned for three months. God was out of patience with these corrupt kings. And Jehoiakim, he ruled 11 years, but it was really just getting ready for Babylon. So after all that, after the decline, the moral decline following uh, the death of Josiah, there we have the ministry of Habakkuk. And so if you will, now open your Bibles to Habakkuk. 
chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. This is what is called Habakkuk's first complaint, or you could think of protest. We shouldn't think of a complaining prophet in in the traditional sense or the common sense of complaining. He, He is protesting. He's upset at what he sees, and he sees a discontinuity between what he knows to be true about the Lord and what is happening in the world. So let's deal with this first verse, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Uh, That's an okay translation, but the word for oracle there is quite literally burden. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And I, the research I saw highly favors burden. They, typically, translations prefer oracle or message because of similarities with another word, but I think it makes more sense to go with burden, the literal translation. This is how one commentator put it. Anyone who in real life has had to preach the solemn message of God's destruction of the wicked will have no trouble agreeing that this word is a burden to bear. Have you ever had to tell someone something that was uncomfortable? that was hard to say and doubly hard for them to hear. It feels heavy. So this signals to us right away that all is not well, and what we are about to hear is burdensome. I had someone tell me that just recently. I told them something, and they said, that's heavy. We're speaking metaphorically, but we know what it means when we hear bits of truth or, or a recounting of something that's happened or something that needs to happen. It feels weighty. So this is the burden that Habakkuk saw. And as I've already indicated about Habakkuk, uh, we don't know much about him, just his name, his message, or his burden, and the time period he's in. We could also say that we can see uh, his heart. In this, you know, when we went through Haggai the prophet, he, he just speaks these very clear, concise messages, and we don't really see into how he works as a person. But the prophet Habakkuk is unique in many ways. In one ways, in one of the ways is that it's a dialogue between the Lord and the prophet. And so we see his own passions, his own inner wrestlings with the world and what's going on. So we see his heart. And then it says, the oracle or the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He saw this. How do you see a burdensome message that in its content is a dialogue between yourself and the Lord? How do you see that? The term stresses that even though Habakkuk is a participant, he, he, he's, a, he's a voice in this dialogue, yet the whole conversation is revelation from God. He sees the whole thing. 
it, it, it might be, or perhaps it was a vision directly from the Lord. And in this vision or dream, he sees himself having this conversation with the Lord. And the whole thing is from the Lord himself. So in this vision that he sees, this burdensome revelation from the Lord, what does he see himself saying? What is this burdensome protest that he has? It has ten elements. It has four questions and six statements. Four questions, six statements. And here is the first question. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not answer? Is that not a burdensome thing to say right out of the gate? Oh Lord, how long, that statement right there, uh, could be a summary of this first protest that he gives. And, and in fact, it could be a summary of the entire book, the entire burden. And I think it resonates with us because we see this throughout Scripture and we feel this. If, if, you, are, if you are one attempting to be a faithful follower of the Lord, that statement, how long, O oh Lord, resonates with you on many, many levels. We read one of them this morning, Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? The martyrs beneath the throne in the Revelation to John, their blood is seen as crying out to the Lord as the ages pass on. How long, O Lord, will you let this go on? How long will you delay in avenging our blood? But I want us to consider something. The Lord is the one who has been saying, how long, from the first and the longest, This is a sampling of what you'll find in Scripture that the Lord Himself says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That's the first time that phrase is used in Scripture. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? How long will this people despise me and not believe in me? How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? How long will your wicked thoughts lodge in you? How long will it be before you are made clean? How long will there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies? How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? How long will they be incapable of innocence? And then the Lord Jesus himself. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? So understand, the Lord in giving this vision to Habakkuk is not creating a context where the prophet asks unanswerable questions about the problem of evil. He is bringing Habakkuk into the posture that the Lord himself has had since the beginning. How long? It's how he sees it. We begin to barely see and barely sense how the Lord himself feels about wickedness and perverseness and evil in the world when we come to the place ourselves where we say, how long, Lord? The second question. So he says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not answer or cry to you violence and you will not save? So he's crying out to the Lord, violence, violence, I'm seeing violence, evil is happening, but you're not saving. 
And so this isn't the attitude of a tattletale. He's not just protesting to the Lord uh, like a child would if their sibling isn't being nice to them. He's looking around and he is seeing the wicked prevail over the weak because of their wickedness and because of violence. And at the same time, it seems to him, and it's factually obvious, that the Lord isn't doing anything, at least in the moment, to stop it. Turn to Psalm 73. Beginning in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. The wicked prosper by means of their wickedness. And it seems sometimes like the Lord isn't doing anything about it. The third question he asks, Why do you make me see iniquity? In 2 Peter we read that Lot was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so there's, a, there's some similarities with that, that Habakkuk is there in the midst of a perverse nation, and he's having to see all this violence and corruption, and it is, it, it is causing some type of soul torment. But in Lot's case, he could have left Gomorrah whenever he wanted to, Sodom, Sodom whenever he wanted to. For Habakkuk's case, he has nowhere to go. There is no righteous city in the more, anymore because there's perverseness. And is that not the case in our lives? When we see wickedness increasing and persisting and thriving, it causes distress. And just as an aside, this is for free. This is why I think we should all spend so much less time on social media. It's doubtful you are ever created or equipped to see that much iniquity. And it numbs us. It makes us insensitive to the sin in our own hearts, in our own homes. So the righteous prophet bemoans the fact that he lives among a people of unclean lips, just like Isaiah does. And it's even more than that. It was a full-scale return to the perverse idolatry that had ruled the day during the time of Manasseh. The fourth question, why do you idly look at wrong? Contrast that with good King Josiah. What did he do when he saw that there was wrong and perverseness and idolatry happening in his land and when he heard the law of the Lord? What type of action did he take? He went through and got rid of all the idols and put to death all of the priests who served those idols. It was wholesale, ferocious, radical, even violent reform. Think of the age of the people at this time when Habakkuk is writing. Likely, the majority of Habakkuk's life. 
was during the reign of good King Josiah. And so he sees that on one hand. Here's what a good leader does when he sees wickedness in the land. And it seems, Lord, like you're idle. Why do you idly look at Rome? Why are you doing nothing? One hears this complaint or a similar complaint or protest echoed in the terrified cries of a few able fishermen caught in an awesome tempest and storm some 600 years later. They awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then he turns to describe the plight of the nation of Judah. So four questions, six statements. Statement number one, destruction and violence are before me. It's a total loss. Things are out of control. And he's not just whining because the weather is not ideal or because it's too hot or there's smoke or they haven't had enough rain. This has echoes of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts were evil continually. Destruction and violence are before me. It's everywhere. Statement two, strife and contention. Uh, strife and contention arise. You know, sometimes if there's, if there's an enemy at the gates, a real existential threat to us, we can see warring factions come together. And there can be a time at least of unity where we all kind of band together to fight the existential threat. But that's not what, that is not what is happening here. The climate and culture of Judah is not one of peacemaking or people meeting each other halfway. Instead, it's strife and contentiousness continually. Does that sound familiar? Number three, so the law is paralyzed. That wonderful law of God that good King Josiah had discovered in the neglected temple several years ago, had driven him and had had such a powerful effect on his heart that it brought him to utter brokenness. Yet now, because of the strife and contention, the law itself is paralyzed. This probably refers to the Torah, but it, it could also refer to the law generally, the civil law. So there is essentially corruption everywhere. From the royal judgment seat to the civil authorities to the military. The law is ineffective. And it's not bringing any good or lasting change. Number four. And justice never goes forth. There's no resolve. There's no fairness. Nothing that one could look at and say with any decisiveness. That was the right thing. That was the right decision. Justice never goes forth, the prophet says. And the righteous remnant longs for justice. This is how David says it. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. And someone who loves the Lord wants his righteousness to go forth. He wants justice to go forth. But now it never goes forth at all. The fifth statement. For the wicked surrounds the righteous. And here's the first clear indication that there are still some righteous in Judah at this time. It's like Isaiah, he refers to, I and the children that God has given to me. So his disciples and his real children, that little band of people in in, uh, Israel at the time was all that were left. Or Elijah, I have kept for myself 
400 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's this little band of the faithful left in the land. Their hope is in the Lord. And and you really need to mark this word righteous. It it, it will become very important in chapter 2 next week. It's a little beleaguered, battered, persecuted, and oppressed group of those barely holding on in the midst of harsh and wicked people. They're surrounded by the wicked, cut off on every side with no way of escape. Number six, so justice goes forth perverted. So earlier he says that justice never goes forth, and yet there's still a kind of justice going forth, but it's perverted. The courts are still functioning. The king still sits on his judgment seat. The officials are carrying out all their edicts. The military is still enforcing things and maybe keeping the peace, but it's a perverted justice, which is intentionally oxymoronic. Perverted justice, that, that's, that's, that's a contradiction. It's like a knockoff brand. Can you imagine spending full price for what you thought was the, the, the premier brand of whatever product you're buying, a backpack, a car, or a purse, or whatever, and you find that it was a knockoff brand, not as nicely made, and it falls apart in less than a year when you had paid the premium price for the ideal product. It looks like it. It looks like what you wanted to buy, but you start using it and start seeing what, it, what it's really all about, and it's not. It's, it's perverted. The righteous want justice. They want righteousness, but what they get and what they're forced to see is perverted justice, a counterfeit justice. So, we've heard and examined the prophet's complaint, his, his solemn and honest protest to the Lord. And now we'll see how the Lord answers. But before we get to exactly how the Lord answers, just for a moment, I think it's very important for us to ask this. It's very important for you, even as Habakkuk himself is in a dialogue with the Lord. It's very important for you to be in a dialogue with Scripture and to be asking questions back and forth as you read through. That's what it means to study and meditate. And here's the question. How do you think Habakkuk is wanting the Lord to answer? What what would he anticipate to bring such a complaint, to bring such a protest to the Lord? What could he want the Lord to say? What would be the ideal response? I mean, what could be done with a situation that bleak? Here are a few options. I'll give you three. Maybe spiritual revival. That the Lord would so move and descend in power among the people that they would be broken over their sin and they would come to a point of contrition and repentance and begin seeking the Lord. That's one option. Number two, maybe another king like Josiah. God certainly has the ability to kill any king that's in place and bring up another king. Why doesn't he just do that? Why don't we have uh, Josiah part two? And get all the idolatry out and return justice to the land. Or maybe a plague or famine, at least. You know, you you rewind back to the judges and God oppresses his people when they fall into sin with all sorts of afflictions. And then eventually they repent. They turn to the Lord. There's maybe a few other options or ideas you could think about that Habakkuk would want the Lord to answer with. Now, I want to say, 
Habakkuk was very likely aware of the prophecies that, and predictions that Isaiah had given to King Hezekiah. We'll get to those in a minute. But perhaps, perhaps the Lord would pardon. Perhaps the people could repent and the Lord would delay again the day of reckoning. He had done so with Nineveh, right? Had that not happened, he sent the prophet Jonah, as we'll see in a few weeks. Repent, or God's going to destroy your city. And they did. And we see later through the prophet Nahum, destruction was decreed because they fell back into sin. So Lord, if you have patience with such a city as Nineveh, can't you have patience with us? Can't you send us another prophet? Maybe Habakkuk is feeling a little bit of inadequacy that his prophetic ministry maybe has failed. It hasn't produced the repentance that we see in Nineveh. Surely the Lord would have some compassion and show mercy if we could just all turn from our wicked ways. But what does the Lord answer? The Lord's first answer comes in verses 5 through 11. And there's no clear shift that says something like, and he answered, or the Lord answered to me, or the word of the Lord came to me, which actually shows the unity of the whole thing. This is something that Habakkuk just saw, that it was all out there in front of him to see. It's all divinely inspired. And here's what the Lord says at first. This is the primary response. Look among the nations, see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days, that you would not believe if told. So he says, look, see, wonder, be astounded. It's a fourfold command to pay attention, to look closely, alerting us to what he's about to say. And he says, be astounded. And I think it carries the flavor that God is unveiling something, that um, a master plan maybe that he's been working on for a while, that that kind of... uh, it's unbelievable. It it, it breaks expectations. It's counterintuitive. It's not the answer that the prophet will like. It's going to cause him to be astounded. And here it is, on its own, just this statement, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans equals Babylon. A big people group within the Babylonian Empire was the Chaldeans. And in fact, the famous king Nebuchadnezzar was part of what is called the Chaldean dynasty. Okay, so it's, 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 it means essentially the same thing. Chaldea, Chaldeans, Babylon, Babylonians. Here is what Isaiah says to Hezekiah. Back, if you're looking at your, your handout, back though, that many years before, right after Shennacherib was turned away, within the space of about a year. Here's what Isaiah says. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. I think Habakkuk likely knew of that prophecy. And he knew that one day there would be a day of reckoning coming and that it would be by means of Babylon. But but Hezekiah wants to maybe delay it a little bit. He, he wants another king like Josiah to delay it. He wants God's mercy to come and compassion to come and give us a chance to sort it out. Send your spirit to revive us. But no. 
the Lord had no more provisions for repentance. No, he would not relent from the disaster that he has planned. Time is up. And there's no more chances. His patience is spent. Judgment is decreed. And Babylon is coming to work a final destruction against Judah and the holy city. Jerusalem will fall. And now the Lord begins to describe the nation of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians that he is raising up. And as we read through these, I want you to consider, uh, consider and keep in your mind the backdrop of the complaint. Right? Keep, keep in your mind the flavor of the prophet's complaint and what he's said about the state of affairs in Judah. And keep in mind that this is the Lord's answer. This is how he's answering the prophet. And we, we saw four questions, six statements, so ten total, ten parts of the prophet's complaint, and the Lord gives twenty descriptors of the Chaldeans. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. They are angry and bitter and lash out. It is not through wisdom that they exert power and dominance, and it is not through careful planning, but rather by a principle of violence within them. They jump to decisions. They take hard stances without any deliberation. And everyone is filled with strife and contention. Does that sound familiar? Who march through the breadth of the earth. And here the Lord prophetically declares that Babylon will eventually be the dominant power over the entire known world, at least for a time, and they did. Unquestioned dominance. Yet remember, this prophecy was given before they had really fully risen to power. This was before they had exerted their influence even past the Euphrates and the Tigris. To seize dwellings not their own. They had already done this in taking Nineveh. And the commentary by Robinson points out that there's this eerie similarity to the way that God promises to the people of Israel that they'll take dwellings not their own in the promised land. And now it's the Babylonians who are going to come into Palestine and take dwellings not their own. It's as if God is saying, you're not worthy of the land. I'm going to kick you out and give it to the Babylonians. They are dreaded and fearsome. You know, the Assyrians were pretty bad. I mean, the, the Egyptians, if you saw them coming over the hill, you maybe have a degree of consternation. But what makes the Babylonians so fearsome and dreadful? Think about it. This is the best example I could come up with. The, the legends and the stories regarding different Africa, uh, uh, Native American tribes. How some were more peaceful and would work with you and some were not. Some were warring tribes. And so when you hear that the Apache are coming, that's, that brings a lot more dread than maybe others. So the Babylonians have this reputation of dread and fear. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. It's almost like the Lord is responding directly to the complaint of the prophet about justice and the law. He mentioned justice twice and the law once, and here the Lord says, their justice and dignity go from themselves. The Lord is essentially saying, you haven't seen anything yet. You think you've seen perverted justice? This nation has its own set of rules. 
They make up their justice on their own. It's mob rule. Might makes right. It's the worst form of democracy and tyranny. What is right is determined by the most or loudest or most powerful voices. Does that sound familiar? Their horses are swifter than leopards. At least five of the 20 statements describe the horses or the horsemen, the cavalry. And cavalry, and especially chariots, when you talk about that in the ancient world, that's like speaking of aircraft carriers and tanks or ICBMs, whatever your military preference is. And what he's saying is they're fast, they're the best, they have the best army. This is a, the next one is describing these horses, more fierce than the evening wolves. It's not just that they're fast like a skittish racehorse. They're, they're fast, but fierce and bold and brazen. One maybe thinks of the Arabian breed. We don't know what breed this was, probably an extinct breed. But they're not afraid of anything, these horses. And what's interesting about horses is that the training and nurture that they're given has a lot of influence on the temperament of the horse, at least individually. And the people of the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, is rubbing off on their horses. Their horsemen press proudly on. Power begets pride. And this is what is happening with the Chaldeans. They've got all the horses. They've got the best horses. They've got the best chariots. They have the best army. And they march proudly on. I think there, there's a verse in Proverbs that uh, there's nothing so proud as a king with, when his army is with him. And so every single horseman, they have confidence in themselves, their justice goes forth from this, themselves, and they're just welling up in pride because of how powerful they are. And this is exactly why the Lord prohibited any future king from accumulating many horses. It's not that the Lord has something against horses. It's that in that age, horses and cavalry and chariots equated to power. He says in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 17, verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. The Lord wanted the king's trust and the people's trust to be in himself. Their horsemen come from afar. Nothing can stop them. Nothing can stop this fearsome cavalry. They begin all the way back in Babylon, and they go through the whole earth. The ferocity of the Babylonian armies has stamina, and it's not growing weary. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They're not coming to make treaties or to force people into paying tribute. They're coming to devour. They're coming for total annihilation and destruction, the same way that an eagle treats a fish once it gets it to a rock or to a nest. That's what Babylon comes to do. They all come for violence. The riders, the horses, and all the army. Not for political or tactical advantage. Not like Rome. You know, Rome was, was playing chess over the whole Mediterranean area. Babylon comes for violence. It's conquest for the sake of conquest. All their faces forward. This, this reinforces bitter and hasty 
It's as if they make no regard for taking any precautions once they go through the whole earth. They're, they're, they're only looking forward to the next thing to take over and to the next thing to bring destruction, to the next thing to work violence against. They're not worried about their rear or flanks. They gather captives like sand. They destroy everything. They take everything. They don't slow down. They take everyone prisoner. At kings they scoff. We'll put these next two together. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. Nothing rattles their self-confidence. No ruler or king, no matter how legendary they may be to others, even makes them pause for a second to count the cost of battle. They run into the fray of the conflict laughing. And they win. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. So a, a fortress in, in the ancient world was no laughing matter, right? Because we had no cruise missiles. We had no bunker busters back then. If a king had a fortress or a tower or a keep, they could preserve that for a while, especially if you had access to water like Hezekiah did. Hezekiah was able for a time to repel the whole Assyrian army because he had access to water in his keep, Jerusalem. But Babylon comes and laughs at fortress. Why? Because they have civil engineers. <laughs> They're handy with a shovel. That's a great wall that you've got there. We don't need to walk around it a total of 13 times to make it fall down like happened under Joshua. We'll just pile up dirt and walk over your wall. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Once they're done, it's clean it up and on to the next one. Rinse, wash, repeat. They're like a swarm of locusts. There's echoes in God's description of Babylon with his ten plagues. This is Attila the Hun on steroids. And remember, the Lord is the one raising them up. This is God's answer to the prophet's complaint. I am raising up the Chaldeans. He's working in their midst before they have total dominance to raise them up to be this. It's almost as if the Lord is wanting us to marvel at his preparation of his divine instrument for judgment. This also has echoes. This is why I said it's very similar to Job. This has echoes of God's praise of Leviathan. Have you seen my divine instrument for punishment, Babylon? Look at how fearsome it is. Guilty men. Second to last description. If Habakkuk's problem is that there were guilty in all the land and they were just going guilty and being wicked and all this stuff going on, the guilty were prevailing over the innocent, then the Lord reinforces the problem even more. Even more. This bitter and hasty nation the Lord is raising up has already been judged in the divine courtroom and the verdict is guilty. They're guilty men. God makes no qualms about that. Whose own might is their God. And this is the final indictment and description and ironic praise that the Lord gives to His divine instrument. And it's most telling. They're not idolaters in the traditional sense, like the Philistines with Dagon, or the Canaanites with Baal, or Asherah. 
They have created a cult around their own might. They worship their own ability to crush other nations. Mars was just one god in a pantheon, the god of war. For them, there is no other god but the god of war. And it's our own might that they worship. So to summarize verses 1 through 11, the prophet says, Look at all this wickedness, Lord. It's a horrible situation in Judah. There's a few righteous left, but won't you do something? And the Lord responds, Yes, but look at my instrument for judgment. That's not the answer that the prophet wanted, or that we want, or that he expected, or that we might expect. So just a few things to consider. Seven, actually. Number one, the Lord sees and the Lord knows. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. God divinely inspired Habakkuk to bring this complaint. It's scripture, and it is the burden or the oracle that Habakkuk saw. So he sees himself through the spirits working in his own heart to bring this complaint. The Lord is aware. The Lord is the one who cries out, how long, first and foremost. And indeed, this is the proper way to approach God. God is bringing us to a place where we begin to feel the same way that He feels. Your frustration with the wickedness of this world is but a faint shadow of His being perfectly fed up with the corruption of his creation. He's been this close to resetting it multiple times. And he desires us as children to share his perspective of the world. Number two, it's worse than you think. No matter how jaded you are or what wickedness you've seen in the world, it's worse than you think. It's not that Habakkuk was being overly pessimistic. The problem was he wasn't a realist enough. He did not see clearly just how far Judah had gone and why judgment and no more patience was the only thing left for the Lord to do. The atheist thinks that they have a leg up on Christians because of the problem of evil. They'll say something like this. If you have a loving God who's all-powerful, how can there be evil? They don't see, one, the logical inconsistencies in that question. But secondly, they have no idea just how bad it is. They think they see wickedness in the world and they're like, Ha! Aha! We've got you! But God's answer is, you don't know the half of it. And honestly, nor do we. Rarely are we afforded the opportunity to see the horror of sin and to look at wickedness right in the face or in the mirror, as the case may be. Rarely ever do we catch a a sliver, a, a, a tiny glimpse of what God sees. So just know that the matters are far worse and God is at work in the world even now to eradicate all wickedness once and for all. And who may abide the day of his coming? And who will stand when he appears? 
Number three, God is sovereign. God moves the wheels of all human history to accomplish his purposes for blessing and for judgment. This is how Proverbs 16 verse 4 says it. God has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. We need to see the world through the lens of Scripture, and it can bring you so much peace. That's where the prophet ends up. We'll get there in a few weeks. Peace comes not because we can interpret every little thing in the headlines through a shoddy, fantastical interpretation of Daniel, Ezekiel, and the revelation to John. But rather, peace comes through seeing the wisdom and work of God clearly revealed in the unfolding of human history. This is how he works. Babylon itself is his divine instrument. Number four, judgment begins at the household of God. This is the most painful and unexpected problem that Habakkuk has. We'll see this next week. The reason this answer from the Lord is unacceptable on one level is because of this principle, judgment begins at the household of God. Why use a nation more wicked than us whose might is their own God? To discipline us, Lord, your people. Wickedness increases because the Lord must often discipline his people through means of things more base and faithless than we are. Don't you see that that must be part of our thinking with how we interpret what's going on in the world? The judgment begins at the household of God. And our response is to complain. To not be happy with God's means of disciplining his people. We rattle our fist at that bitter and hasty nation, whichever one that may be. So, number five, don't point fingers at Babylon. Their time will come. We'll see that as well. God promises to punish Babylon for her own sin. But standing from this perspective, from this point, sharing the perspective of the prophet Habakkuk, which bothers you more? The wickedness of God's instrument for judgment or faithlessness in the church? Which bothers you more? Sexual perversion and gender insanity in the world or more immorality and idolatry within the church? Which bothers you more? Injustice in the courts and corruption in government or the injustice of not honoring God like he should be honored in the church? Which bothers you more, the infringing on your rights and privileges in our day, or a lackadaisical, haphazard perspective towards the life-dominating commands of Christ and his apostles in the church? Which bothers you more, potential and actual new orders about not gathering, Or the fact that when most churches gather, it is, as Paul says, for the worse and not for the better. Which bothers you more, real and potential governmental mandates to wear a mask? Or the fact that the mask we all wear of hypocrisy rarely ever comes off? 
Here's what Richard Sibbs says about this perspective of a tendered heart towards the church. So, we might keep, keep our hearts tender if we did but set before our eyes the pitiful estate of God's church abroad, and that we may come to be in such a state ourselves before long. The mystery of lawlessness, brothers and sisters, is already at work. Judgment begins at the household of God. The first response, as we rest in the knowledge of God that He will one day bring Babylon to ruin, is to understand that God has ordained that the wickedness of the world, even towards us, is a means of purifying and disciplining His church. Let us consider our ways and return to the Lord. Number six, eventually the time will be up. Eventually the time was up for Judah, and eventually the time would be up for Babylon, and eventually the time is going to be up for this world. Just read the Revelation to John. Even with the church, time can be up. With an individual church, if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. At some point, the patience of God... Even the patience of our Lord Jesus can be spent if we persist in unrepentance. And who is insane enough to presume that they have more time before it is spent? Repent. Would that all of us would respond to the word like good King Josiah did. On the last day, There will be no instrument for divine punishment or judgment. It will be the Lord himself. And those who are not reconciled to God by the blood of the Lamb will cry for the mountains and rocks to crush them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Number seven, rest in the hope of the gospel. This has been a heavy text. It's a heavy 11 verses. There's no way to make it shorter. We've got to talk about this. This is how the Lord works. But the hope is coming in chapter 2. Rest in the hope that the righteous will live by faith. That righteous group, that beleaguered little group that is going to be swept away when Babylon comes through, even though they're righteous, they will live by faith. The Lord will build his church, even in the midst of a world that is opposed to us and increases in wickedness. God will build his church. And in Christ, if you turn to him in repentance, there is no expiration date on his patience or kindness or forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, help us understand the mystery of lawlessness and how you work in the world. Give us a fresh set of eyes to interpret and understand the times. Help us understand that judgment begins at the household of God and to consider our ways and repent. In Jesus' name, amen.